Happy Advent. Hope you're enjoying our last night here. Now, I was thinking about being a child today, and, and for those of you who don't know, I've said this before, but not for some time. When I was a little kid, my, my aunts had a nickname for me in Greek. It was Diavolaki, which means little devil, um, normally because I was incorrigible and uh, would never do what I was supposed to do. Or if I did do it, I would do it in such a way to, to make a point, even as a toddler. Remember one time when uh, my uncle Tim was uh, babysitting me, and he had his friend Pete over, and I think they had a coke or a beer on a end table, and I remember—I uh, didn't remember this. I'm told this later, but I picked up the beer, and um, my uncle Tim said, "Mike, put that down." He says, "You just looked up at me, smiled." and let go. (laughs) Now that kind of immediate obedience is actually not what I'm talking about today, although I am talking about immediate obedience. I remember um, when we were young parents, Mary and I were in a church that was uh, pretty conservative and was doing a lot of training of young parents. And they were teaching us to make sure our children would, and I quote, hear and obey. So if you were talking to your child, uh, that was always the last straw before a spanking or before being sent to timeout or whatever else you were going to do to make your point. So if you said to your child, um, you know, don't do that, and they ignored you, you would say, hear and obey. And the kid would know, okay, this is, this is it. This is the last time before consequences happen. And then we would, you know, very often, either a timeout or a spanking. And, and so we got a lot of flack uh, from our parents' generation, raised on, you know, Dr. Spock, who did not believe in corporal punishment for, uh, for children. And uh, we, we got a lot of flack. I mean, and, and you know, and we, we did it gently. I mean, it wasn't like you beat your kid to death or anything like that. Um, but um, I remember uh, one family in particular, their name was The Rules, uh, which I thought was kind of wonderfully ironic. And, um, but um, The Rules' uh, in-laws of... Um, didn't like this whole child-rearing business at all until one day when the rural children were playing out in the front yard and a ball went sailing across the street and one of the rural children was in hot pursuit after the ball, but there was a car coming down the street which the child did not see. And the father screams out, Stop! And the kid like stops on a dime and the car goes flying past he turned to his father-in-law and said that's why we teach our children to hear and obey it's like whoa I mean what a great 
great way to put one over on your father-in-law. <laughs> but, but God's a parent, isn't he? Don't we often refer to God as, as father? And so I'm wondering, um, do you think God would ever want to teach us to, to hear and obey? Do you think that perhaps we could find that in the scriptures any place? You know, we've been going through the life of Joseph, and so we're going to continue on that tack tonight. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 2. If not, it should be on the wall behind me. I'm going to stop and talk about this passage along the way because there's a lot of great background information that you might know if you've been around scum for a while. You may not know if you haven't been around scum for a while. So I'll be stopping as we go along. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Jesus was born, we think, right around 6 B.C. You're going, wait a minute, Mike. You know, it's like, you know, A.D. 1 when he was born, isn't it? There was no year zero, just in case you were wondering. Uh, But actually, um, back in the day when they were trying to figure out a new calendar to go away from the old Roman calendar. There was actually a calendar that the whole world used that was based on the year that Rome was founded. And so by the time Christendom had spread through most of the Western world, uh, they were thinking, that's dumb. Why Why do we keep on doing it from the founding of Rome? Let's do it from the greatest event in the history of the earth. Let's do it from the coming, the incarnation of Jesus. And so they decided, you know, year one would be this point at which Jesus was born, and they just didn't have all the information we have today. They didn't know when Herod the Great died. That's the big thing. Uh, so they're off by about six years. So we think now that Jesus was born around 6 B.C. doesn't really change anything, just so you know. Um, you know, except for maybe now it's 2005. <laughs> So, uh, party like it's 2005, folks. Um, the, um, the comma there actually represents a long period of time. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, comma, there's time there. Matthew's not concerned about telling you how much time. He's just saying, after this, sometime. I'm just like, no, no it's, it's a while. Okay? Probably at least a couple years when we gather. During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, Magi, uh, what we commonly refer to as we three kings, right? We say three kings because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There probably weren't three kings. Probably were a lot more kings. And they probably came with a whole lot more people than just three kings because three guys laden down with all those riches would not be going across the Middle East all by themselves. So um, if you have your nativity scene at home, then you need to put like a little cohort of armed horse riders or camel riders along with several kings, all right? And if you've got them right there by the manger, since it's a couple years later, 
you need to find a corner of the house and place those guys that far away from where the baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary are in the manger. Okay? A little historical, cultural context. Plus, they're not really kings. So take those crowns and, you know, paint them black or something. Because what they are, what they are is, oh, I don't know, what could magi be short for? Magicians, yes. Uh, they were actually scholars. They were astronomers, astrologers, professor types, religious, semi-religious figures. Uh, they were, you know, all of the above. They weren't kings. Herod's a king. They are magi. They're like the New Agers who found out about Jesus through all the wrong reasons, all the wrong ways, maybe. You know, they're watching the stars. We think that probably uh, they came from Babylon because they were great stargazers over there. And um, they had access probably to the writings of the prophet Daniel from back in the captivity. So they perhaps had counted the weeks up and were looking for the advent of the great king that Daniel had spoken about, the Messiah, the prophetic writings of the prophet Daniel. And so they're already kind of looking in the sky, waiting, and they see this star that rises in the east, and they're going, oh, this has got to be it. And so they take off, and it takes them a couple of years to get there, to Jerusalem. But they finally make it. And they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Uh, The uh, Greek word there is a whole lot more emphatic than disturbed. Maybe distraught is a better word uh, to translate that. He was on the verge of being terrified because you see, Herod really wasn't the rightful king of the Jews if you looked at genealogies. He was kind of a puppet king put in place by Rome. He was really only half Jewish, and he ruled by force of military might. He was a very great builder, so he had to pay for it, and so he taxed people quite a bit. He wasn't very well liked. And when Magi, learned astrologer, astronomer, religious type of New Age dudes come from Babylon and they say, hey, where's the one who was born king of the Jews, not the one you know who was kind of just put in place by Rome? He gets really upset because he knows the old stories too. But he's not too up on the old biblical prophecies, so he calls together some people who know. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, which is about like five or six miles away from Jerusalem, where they're at right now. For this is what the prophet has written. This is the prophet Malachi, one of the few Latino prophets in the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is actually the same little village from where King David 
was. So this is like, oh my gosh, we're, we're doing this all over again. One who is like King David, one who has come from the line of David, one who will come and rule Israel is coming from the same town, and it's only five or six miles away. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, probably one to two years earlier. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, he's obviously not concerned about worshiping the child, as we find out in a little bit. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now this is one funky star. I mean, seriously, if it rose on the east in the constellation, now it has somehow sprouted wings and is leading them to the exact spot where the child is. My best guess was some kind of angel, you know? People always
destroyed. On coming to the house, house, hmm, why would the NIV translators call this a house? Well, in Greek, the word comes from the word oikos, and uh, in Greek, the word oikos means house. <laughs> yeah. El Fontes Oikian, they, 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 they found the house. Jesus was in a house, not in a stable any longer. Obviously, Mary and Joseph had been there for one to two years. I'm assuming Joseph was trying to find some kind of work. And they got a place to stay that wasn't just some barn or some shed or like the lower part of a house that where you kept the animals or a cave. They were in a house, and they saw the child, the child, not a baby. A pavi in Greek means child, doesn't mean baby. There's a different word for baby than there is for child, just like there is in English. And that's what the translators have done, is they've translated it correctly. So they come to the house, and they see the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, if you're one or two, what do you do with gold? I mean, it's shiny. Maybe you could chew on it for a while. You know, drool on it. You can. You don't have a lot of use for gold. I don't know a lot of one- to two-year-olds who are, you know burning frankincense or myrrh. So I'm imagining that Joseph had to take care of this treasure, and it really is a king's ransom. These guys bring gifts fit for a king. They've traveled a long time and a long way, and they come and they're paying homage. This is like the one that's been foretold. This is We saw his signs in the heavens. He is worth a lot. We want to curry favor with this one. And they bring a lot of cash. And Joseph gets to be the caretaker of it. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I get a windfall like that, I want to spend it right away. I mean, I'm sure there was an iPad that Joseph was looking at would help him with the carpentry business or something. Tools. Come on, he's a carpenter. He's got to love tools, right? But if you're like me, what I've found as I've gotten older is that normally God doesn't give me something if he doesn't have something already planned for it. Aha. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, I think it's interesting what this text does not say. The angel does not say, don't be afraid. 
Which is the first thing, as we know, that angels are always taught to say to humans when they go to angel school, as my, my friend Jim Emig is wont to say. My guess is that we've had this conversation before, and Joseph now is aware of the angel and the kind of sage, wise advice that angels tend to offer him. It's what got him in on this whole hero's journey to begin with. And so the angel says, get up. Doesn't sound like a suggestion, by the way. It's in the imperative voice, which means it's an order. Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. When do we normally dream? At night, right? When do we normally lie down? At night. So this is probably happening in the middle of the night. Joseph is the father of a one to two year old kid and he's got his wife that he's taking care of. And he is told to get up and go to Egypt. Now, anybody, how many people here are from out of town? How many people here are not from Denver? Raise your hands. Okay. Now, you guys have gone back home for the holidays or for some birthday or special occasion, a wedding, right? Okay. How often do you get up in the middle of the night and take off? You don't. You normally go, I tell you what, I, what I need before I start on this trip, I need a good night's sleep and I need a hearty breakfast in the morning before I take off. And Joseph, you would think, <laughs> for the 80 mile or so trip that he's about to undergo, is going, okay, Gabriel, we've been here before. I understand. Um, first thing in the morning after a hearty breakfast, I will be on my way. Just let me get a couple more winks of sleep here. But that's not what Joseph does. You see, Joseph has learned to hear and obey. The first thing is hear. Hear. He's heard the voice of God through the angel before. It has not let him down. And he's learned to obey. It's never done him anything but good. And so Joseph gets up and immediately brings his wife and small child on a grueling 80-mile trip. No car. Let's hopefully they had a donkey. I mean, he's gone. Why? Because there are enemies out to kill him. Now, the great thing about the Lord, God, here, is that he hasn't left Joseph without any means of support. In the hero's journey, we talked about this, Chris Vogler, Joseph Conrad, um, there always comes a time in a hero's journey when there is a test, but the test is always made easier because of the allies who have come along with, right? 
And so, how am I going to afford to go to Egypt? How am I going to be able to live there? I don't, I mean, there's like a, they'll probably go to Alexandria, we think. Alexandria was a big metropolis and one of the largest in the ancient world. They perhaps had a million Jews living in Alexandria. So he had a place to go. He had maybe even new people there. But, I mean, it's different, you know, when you're trying to make a living someplace. You move to a new town, and you've got to find a job. And the problem is most employers have everybody they need. And if, you know, you're, you're a tradesman, most everybody has a plumber they like, an electrician they like. They have, you know, building contractors they like. They have those things already in place. And Joseph is going, how am I going to afford to provide for this family while I'm in Egypt? I mean, how do you expect me to... Oh, wait a minute. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. So he has provision for quite some time. And they go there, probably for at least uh, a couple years, we're thinking. Because we know that Herod dies in 4 B.C. Jesus is born around 6 B.C. He's a child, so maybe he's one or so. At some point, Herod dies. Angel comes, says, hey, he's dead. You know, so Joseph, even if he can't find work, has a way to provide for his family. Which is great to know. That in the hero's journey, when God calls us to hear and obey, the test to hear and obey comes that he's going to provide for us in the middle of that test. Because there are enemies who are hot on our tail. Because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet out of Egypt I called my son now this is a prophecy from Hosea and for you biblical scholars it's really not about Jesus it just isn't it's about the people of Israel being called by God, out of their slavery in Egypt during the time of Moses. That's what Hosea is talking about. So where does Matthew, the writer of the gospel, get off quoting this prophecy as proof that Jesus is the Messiah? You ever wonder about that? Well, to a Jewish person, that wasn't a problem. Not at all. There's this thing called a well, we have a word for it now, a typological fulfillment. Jesus is in this prophecy being identified with the people that he's come to save. What Hosea has said about the people of Israel and Egypt being delivered by God, Matthew is saying in the same way that God delivered the people of Israel the sons of God, the daughters of God, from slavery, from oppression, from, from, from being brutalized and sometimes killed at the hand of their Egyptian captors. Jesus is the same. 
There, there's a, a typological fulfillment here. Jesus identifies with the Jewish people in that he's called out of Egypt too, as well. Verse 16, when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this, again, is the same kind of a prophecy. Jeremiah is not talking about Jesus. Jeremiah is talking about the children of Israel who were carted off into captivity by the Babylonians. Rachel is the mother of, kind of seen as one of the matriarchs of the nation, she was actually not, her bones, her, she was not buried far from Bethlehem. And so he, Matthew goes back into the Old Testament and he, he takes that prophecy and applies it to what's going on now, saying that this terrible, terrible infanticide perpetuated by Herod upon his own people is like unto what happened way back when, when our children were carted off and killed by the Babylonians. All right. Now, we've been talking about this hero's journey. And we've seen it in all sorts of movies. I've used Lord of the Rings and, and Star Wars, to kind of illustrate this, I'm going to continue in that vein. This is something that's very deep inside us. I think God's put it there. But do you recall, in most of these stories, there's always a mentor. There's always the wise old sage who warns Frodo about what is to come? And what would his name be in The Lord of the Rings? Gandalf, right. Now, if you know the book, you know that uh, Samwise Ganji and Frodo are uh, at the local tavern, tipping back a few, and they're, they're walking, perhaps rather staggering, back to Frodo's home. When they get there, and the whole place is a mess... And all of a sudden, out of the shadows comes Gandalf, scares the crap out of him, and asks, where's the ring? Is it safe? You have to go now. You must go now. Not unlike the angel talking to Joseph, because the dark riders are on the way. And all of a sudden, Frodo is propelled on the next leg of his hero's journey, Right? And he's given allies along the way. He's given Samwise Ganji. He's given uh, Mary and Pippin and, and, uh, and then eventually the Fellowship of the Ring to, to go on this. He has people who are helping him. The, you know, the elves give them gifts so that they can complete 
the task that they've been given. Not unlike what's going on here with Joseph. Same thing happens in Star Wars. Except it's not an angel, it's, who is it? Obi-Wan Kenobi, right. Who, even after he's, I don't know what happens to him, he's not really killed, is he? Even after he goes into the next dimension, he's a voice that says things like, Use the force, Luke. Use the force. My son actually is named Luke. When he was a little child and was eating with his hands, very often I would say, Use the fork, Luke. (laughs) Which he did not get until he was much older. (laughs) So... But, but Luke's not alone. I mean, he, he gets companions to help him out. Han Solo, Chewbacca, right? They, they come to his aid. Lando Calrissian. They come to his aid so he can complete what he needs to complete. Because there's enemies out there. The Empire is out to, to kill him. Darth Vader is out to get him. There's enemies. But during the test, the times of testing, there are also allies who help him out. Because Luke has learned to trust the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, he acts immediately when Obi-Wan says something. Because Frodo has learned to trust the voice of Gandalf, he acts immediately when Gandalf says to do something. Because Joseph has learned to trust the voice of the Lord as it comes through The angel, he acts immediately when something is said. It seems to me that in order to obey, we must first have to hear and be used to hearing the voice of God. If every one of us is on a hero's journey, Jesus is the main character, we're supporting characters just like Joseph's supporting character. We need to learn to hear the voice of our Father when He says, Stop! Or hear and obey. Go! Now! Not later. Because sometimes delayed obedience is the same as disobedience. Delayed obedience can be the same sometimes as disobedience. I remember when... uh, I told you about the time when I was checking out Jesus and checking out other forms of religions and I was involved in what amounts to a cult. I remember the feeling that I ought to leave there. I'm so glad that I somehow obeyed that feeling. I didn't know it was the Lord at that point. I just had a weird feeling about it. And so I didn't go back. I'm so glad I didn't go back. Who knows what? would have happened. There was one time when I was uh, a new Christian. I was dating a woman who wasn't a Christian. She was beautiful. She was nice. She was fun. She was my manager in the retail store where I worked during college for a while. She's also very, very 
experienced sexually. Uh, I was not. That intrigued me. And we started going out. Now, I knew that if I told my newly found Christian friends that I was dating a non-Christian, sexually active older woman, that uh, they may urge me to stop, which is why I didn't tell them. I never forget what happened one night. I was sleeping, had a dream. And in this dream, I was married to this woman. We were sitting in the kitchen table for breakfast. And I was trying to explain to her something deep, some struggle I was having with the Lord. I didn't want to obey, but I knew he wanted me to do something, but I didn't want to do it. And she just sat there, you know, with her Farrah Fawcett hairdo, because it was the 70s. She kind of looked like Farrah Fawcett a little bit, I thought. And she did not understand one word I was uttering. She's just smiling beautifully, <laughs> batting her eyelashes. And I'm struggling with this angst. And I realized she will never understand my deepest emotions, fears. And all of a sudden, these bars came down like chunk, thick, iron. Bars. I was in this prison, and I grabbed these bars, and I'm shaking these bars, trying to get out, trying to see if they'll get loose, but they would not budge one millimeter. And I'm straining with everything I have to get out of this jail. And all of a sudden, I wake up, terrified. My T-shirt is plastered to my chest with sweat. And I sit up bolt right in bed, and I'm going, God, are you trying to talk to me? I mean, I was frightened. I was breathing hard. And as I got quiet, as my breathing came back to the normal, I felt a little voice inside of my head say, You know, Mike, you look at marriage like an ironclad commitment, kind of like those bars. And if you marry this girl, you're going to be stuck with someone who doesn't understand the deepest parts of you. Is that what you want? It was one of those hear and obey moments. I broke up with her on our next date. The irony is she ended up marrying one of the guys who had led me to the Lord. And last time I was with them both, neither one of them was involved in any kind of church fellowship or neither one of them had an assurance of God's love and protection and provision for their lives. I haven't always obeyed that voice. I remember being in the middle of trying to pay 
some utilities uh, when I was broke, laid off. And I knew, I knew, I, I, I heard this, don't use the credit card to pay your electric bill. I heard that. Don't use a credit card to pay your water bill. Don't. But I was so afraid I did. I paid for those bills for years afterward. Years. Years. I tried to pay off that balance at 28% interest, whatever the credit card rate was at the time. I wonder to this day if I had obeyed immediately and cut up the credit card, what would God have done? I don't know. I'll never know what would have happened. None of us is ever told what would have happened. There was a time um, several years ago, several, when uh, my wife Mary said to me, you know, you really should go back to Denver Seminary and finish up that degree. And I had all the excuses. I had daughters who are in college. Scum is starting to grow. I don't have time. I'm in full-time ministry. I've got a young staff. I'm, I, I can't go back. And so I didn't. I wish I had heard the Lord's whisper within the voice of my wife. Because perhaps... I would have gone and talked to people at the seminary about it in enough time to actually get a degree from the hours I already had. I found out a few years later that I had enough hours for a master's. Not an MDiv, but enough hours for a master's. And they had changed the catalog so that all those hours would actually qualify for a master's degree. But now, but now... Those credits are too old, and I can't get a degree, and I've asked twice now. The second time I asked, having the president of the seminary working for me, and even he couldn't get it done. What if I had heard the Lord's voice speaking through my wife and obeyed at that moment? Might I have some kind of proof of the 68 hours that I have studied and taken and paid for? Perhaps. I will never know. Because we're not told what might have happened. We will all be faced with what I call the hear and obey test. We will all be faced with the hear and obey test. And God will do everything in His power to make sure that we pass the hear and obey test by providing us with allies and provision along the way because there are enemies out to get us, to take away those things that God has given. What has God been saying to you? What's your journey? Where is God speaking to you? Who are the allies that he's put in your life in order to travel that hero's journey? Who are the enemies that you have who are out to thwart God's plans for your life?
your spiritual enemies are behind the darkness of night. You really can't see them very well. I don't believe that it was just Herod and his soldiers that Joseph and Jesus and Mary had to flee from. When the angels appeared to the shepherds, it is said in the scripture that there was a heavenly host. Those are biblical words for the army of God. Hosts. Army. There, in front of the shepherds, the night that Jesus was born, an army of angels appears to the shepherds, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace to men upon whom his favor rests. This day there is born to you a Savior, Christ the Lord, in the city of David. Go. Check him out. See for yourself. Why would there be an army of angels? Because I think there's an army of demons who are even that night bent on destroying the child and couldn't do much of anything for a couple years and got thwarted again because God is bent on making sure his people have allies and provision for whatever test they're about to undergo. Whatever, whatever schemes of the evil one that God has seen are about to befall you, he will provide you with allies so that you might pass the hear and obey test. Now, I want to end with this because it's Christmas time and maybe a lot of you are thinking about making a trip back home. Sometimes that can be a dangerous journey full of all kinds of darkness. God is not going to let you make that journey without the protection you need, without the provision that you need. Just be aware that you have to listen to his timing. Because when God tells you to do something, it's a hear and obey moment. It's a hear and obey moment. That will be your test. May you pass it with flying colors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the life of your servant, the carpenter Joseph, the stepfather to Jesus. May we all, Lord, be as faithful as parents when we one day have children, knowing that really they're not even our children, but they are yours as surely as the Christ child was yours and Joseph was caretaker. When it comes time for our tests of hearing and obeying, Lord, may we hear and may we obey. And it's in Christ child's name we pray. Amen.